Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We have the privilege of hearing God's Word and from Acts 15, uh, verse 36. This is God's Word and it is eternally true. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were saying, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, She kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowds rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Pastor Phil, sickness hit the Moyer home last night, in the night. And so that's why he's not here leading you this morning. Let's stop and pray for him and his family. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our dear brother and his wife Amy and precious children. And we ask, Lord, that you would draw near to them and comfort them in this sickness and give them health, we pray. Restore them to health soon and to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, chapter 16 launches us into Paul's second missionary journey, his second of three journeys that he's going to take. I think you've got the map of that journey, the outline of it there. It's going to take him three years to complete this big circle, this big loop. It's going to take him to an entirely new continent. He passes over into Macedonia here, which is in Europe. That's Greece, modern-day Greece. He's going to cover over 2,700 miles. 
in the course of these three years. That's like coming from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles by foot or by boat. A pretty amazing journey. A lot of ground that he covers, and we have a lot of ground to cover this morning in this awesome chapter, so let's get to it. I want to take a, there's a couple of main themes that I see in this passage that I want us to note as we go through it. The first is the sovereignty of God. These are interrelated themes. First is the sovereignty of God and salvation. God is sovereign in salvation. The second theme is the faith of households. That is really emphasized in this chapter, the faith of households. Let's note these things as we go along. The impetus for Paul's second trip comes after the conclusion of the Jerusalem council and the delivery of its decrees up to Antioch and the communication of those decrees to the joy of the saints and believers there. And Paul turns to his his partner Barnabas and says, hey Barnabas, this is verse 36 of chapter 15, let's go back to Galatia, to those churches that that we planted together and see how they fare, see how they're doing together. And what happens next is tragic. Because that marks the end. This moment marks the end of Paul and Barnabas' working relationship together. Not, not the proposal to go, but they end up arguing over Barnabas's nephew, John Mark. This is John Mark, who is going to become the author eventually of the Gospel of Mark. So, so God's going to do good things with this man. But Paul is not at all convinced of his worthiness, his trustworthiness, his fitness for joining them. He went with them, Paul and Barnabas, on the first journey for a time, and then he abandoned ship. For whatever reason, we don't know, but Paul was not happy, and he was still not happy to that day. And so Barnabas is saying, let's bring John Mark with us. I, you know, I'm his, he's his advocate for his, for his nephew. And Paul says, no way, no way. And so... This is, this is a tragic separation. There occurred, it says in verse 39, such a sharp disagreement between them that they separated from one another over this. Who's right? Who's wrong in this disagreement? Luke doesn't clearly say. There's arguments for one or the other being more right or more wrong. Uh, Calvin, if you're curious, does a really good job of kind of weighing it all. So you can read that if you want. Um, but he concludes, and I think rightly, that either one of, they didn't have to separate over this. Either one could have lost to the other without violating any great principle. Either one. But they chose not to. They made a principle out of it, both of them, and were unwilling to bend towards one another. This is a helpful bit of realism from, the, from, the, from Luke. I'm glad that this and things like this are in the scriptures. The scriptures are not hagiography. You know that word, hagiography? It's like a biography that's so prettied up that the person is impossibly pious or impossibly holy and you can't even begin to relate to them. It's awful. Scripture does not do hagiography, praise God. This is actually one of the great proofs that scripture is reliable and true and authentic. It's because it, it, unlike most things, records the sins and failures of its heroes. It just puts them out there. The greatest saints in the Old Testament are real sinners, and you can relate to them. There's only one holy, pure, and righteous one, and that's Jesus. Everybody else is either in him or out of him. Here we see that 
apostles are people too. And they have a hard time getting on in relationships like the rest of us. That's encouraging to me. It's helpful. Makes Paul relatable. So in this parting of ways, Barnabas kind of slinks away with John Mark to Cyprus, back to their home country. And Paul picks up a new traveling companion, Silas. Silas is one of the men appointed by the Jerusalem Council to to deliver the letter up to Antioch. So that's how Paul gets to know him probably, through this journey up north and him coming up and encouraging the church with those decrees. And Silas proves to be uh, uh, sympathetic to Paul and his mission and his ministry and, and, and commends himself to Paul as somebody who would be a good partner for this journey. He's got a couple of qualifications practically that are really useful too. One, he's from Jerusalem. And to that day, among the Jews, people from Jerusalem had clout, had stature. And so he could, Paul could make use of Barna, uh, not, but Silas's stature among the people he was going to try and reach in the synagogues. But also, he's a Roman citizen. So like Paul, he was Jew, but he had Roman citizenship. And that was really useful because it afforded him certain civic privileges and rights that were guaranteed to him. Paul's not going to be ashamed many times in his life and his ministry to, to flash his Roman citizenship card. This is one of the examples. Wonderful example at the end of this kind of irony of where for whatever reason Paul has kept that under wraps. Maybe he wasn't able to be heard because it's kind of a mob situation. Maybe he couldn't get in there. But when they come and want to release him from prison at the end, he says, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> You've just violated the rights of a Roman citizen. You didn't afford me trial. You've beaten me without trial and imprisoned me. And they're scared, rightly so, because it's like a capital offense. Now, Paul's not going to have to be ashamed to flash that card because Silas also has a card, (laughs) his Roman citizenship. So Paul has a good partner here in many ways in Silas. They set out on foot together for the province of Galatia, where he and Barnabas had labored for some time and planted churches and done good work together. And that's the end of chapter 15. Chapter 16 begins with Paul back in Galatia, first in the city of Derbe and then in Lystra. Those are cities he'd previously been to. And in Lystra, that's where Paul had been mistaken for the god Hermes and Barnabas for Zeus. So that's where that went down. That's where he's back. And Paul picks up there a young believer named Timothy and conscripts him for service for the Lord's work. Come on, Timothy, you're going to become a minister with me for the gospel. And and God does make great things out of Timothy. He becomes very much like a son and a protege to the apostle Paul. They're very closely bound together through this experience. And, And Timothy is trustworthy like very few are in the eyes of Paul. Proves himself a very worthy, good young man. So Paul, but Paul's not alone in his making his judgments. And I think this is a wonderful attestation to Paul's ecclesiology, his, his commitment to the church. He checks Timothy's references. Verse 2 talks about how Timothy is well spoken of by the brethren. And that would matter to Paul. He wouldn't just choose a man on his own. He would listen to the church and its wisdom and, and seek its approval too. We've seen that many times. This is just another evidence of that. So Paul does something very fascinating with Timothy right from the start. He has this young man circumcised. Tim, why does he do that? It's very interesting. Uh, 
It's especially interesting or curious in light of the fact that here he is, Paul and Silas, delivering the decrees of the Council of Jerusalem to the Galatian churches, communicating those decrees. And central to those decrees is you don't have to be circumcised to be a part of the church, to be joined to Jesus, to be saved. You don't have to be. Here's all we require of you. And so here he is. And then you also have to weigh the fact that some years previously, Paul had taken a Gentile young man named Titus down to Jerusalem with him when he delivered with Barnabas funds to the relief of the, uh, for the famine down to Jerusalem. They took up a collection. Paul delivered them down. He brought an uncircumcised Gentile with him. Pretty spicy thing to do. And, and Titus and they came under intense pressure at that time. It says in his letter to the Galatians, we came under intense pressure from certain members of the Jerusalem church to have Titus circumcised, but we didn't give in to him even for an hour, Paul brags in Galatians. Here, suddenly, he's anticipating pressure on him, and he has Timothy circumcised. Well, Timothy's a little bit different in that Timothy is a Jew. By legally speaking, he is the son of a Jewish woman. His father is a Greek. If you were, if you were born... To, if your mother was Jewish, you were legally, technically speaking, Jewish. But he was not circumcised. So the churches that Paul would be taking this young man to, who had not been evangelized, they'd, let alone heard the decrees of the Council of Jerusalem or had any chance to process all of that. They hadn't even heard of Jesus yet. Paul's anticipating going there, and he's got this young Jewish man who they would see as an apostate Jew. He's a rebellious Jew. He has not obeyed the covenant of God. He's not received circumcision. Paul, what are you doing hanging out with this apostate? So he's a little bit different right off the bat of a character than Titus. And it's also a very different situation. In Jerusalem, Paul was going among believers in Jesus, among the, into the church. And he was helping address and work through an issue that was central to the church and threatening the, the unity of the church. The situation out in Europe and on the road is very different. It's the Jews, but they haven't heard about Jesus. Paul is seeking to win them to Jesus. And so what he does with Timothy is he takes an immediate offense and barrier to ministry to the Jews out of the equation. And he says, Timothy, I want you to be circumcised. Timothy's probably thinking, Oh shoot, I thought you were just gonna, I thought you were having this conversation with me to tell me I had to raise my own funds. <laughs> you want me to do what? Timothy's father, a, 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 Greek, a Greek, a pagan Greek, as far as we can tell, probably didn't have him circumcised because he wanted him to grow up with a Greek identity. And I think that speaks really highly of Timothy's mother, Eunice. Is in spite of that, in spite of the fact that he wasn't welcome to be a part of the church and his father wasn't on board with any of that, she managed to imprint her faith on her son. That's a major theme of this passage over and over. This is the first instance of it. We, we typically would read this passage and think, oh, there's two accounts of household baptism, and there are, but there's three accounts of household faith. And the first one here is with Timothy and his mother Eunice. We know her name from one of Paul's letters to Timothy. Okay. 
So going on from Lystra with Timothy now in tow, the company passes through the Phrygian and Galatian region. It says in verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's really amazing. So to help understand it, consider this. Paul's apostolate is to the world. Go to all the nations. And here is God helpfully giving Paul direction. Strangely, it's coming first in the first couple of words from God. It's coming through negative direction. No, don't go here. No, don't go here. Where is the first no? He says, don't, don't speak the word in Asia. I used to, when I was young, I used to think this was Paul wanting to go to China, but the Spirit saying, no, go to Europe instead. But Asia at this time, you want to put the map back up? Asia at this time, you see Asia? That's like that southwest corner of Turkey, of Anatolian Peninsula. And that's where, that's where Ephesus was. And probably Paul had ambitions to go to Ephesus because it's a really important city, strategic. But God said at this time, no, don't go to Asia. And, and isn't that amazing that God gave him... It, it, what it is, and you, so you can take the map down. Everybody's eyes are on the map. <laughs> Back to me. It's very amazing, though, that God gives him negative direction and how it's put like this. Don't, you're forbidden to speak the word in Asia. And that right there is a pretty amazing evidence in the text of a reminder of God's sovereignty in salvation. You can't avoid it. God chooses who will hear and who will not hear and when. And there we see it just very clear. God saying no not those in Asia today. And then, so they're, 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 try, they're sort of in a period of wondering, it, sounds, it seems like to me as I read this, and they're not sure where they're headed. They're passing through the region. God says, don't go south to Asia. And then they're, looking, they're casting their view to the north, to Bithynia, northern Turkey. And, um, and God's, the Spirit of Jesus says, no, don't go there either. So he's sort of funneling them towards the coast to eventually they wind up at the city, a coastal city of Troas, which is near ancient Troy. If you know your ancient history, ancient Greek myths, city of Troy was very near there. So Troas on the coast. And there finally God gives them positive direction, what they believe to be positive direction. Paul has a dream one night and the dream says, there's a, pic, a man in the dream, a Macedonian man, that's a Greek man. And he says, come over here and help us. And Paul tells the team the next day, here's Here's the vision I had in the night. What do we think of it? And they conclude that it is God directing them over into Greece. There's a really interesting change of pronoun that happens here, which is, indicates in a subtle way that they've picked up yet another companion in their travels. This is, if you notice in verse 10, I think it is, verse 10, it suddenly, up to this point, everything has been they did this and they did that, and now suddenly it becomes we. And that is Luke, the author's signature, as his little subtle indication that he has joined this team. We wish we knew more about the circumstances of how he got on board, how he met them, and what happened, how God worked in his life to make him part of this crew. But we know, he knew, he know, we know at times that he was part of Paul's journeying team, and that he probably wrote this whole book under Paul's oversight and direction, certainly with research. But here he is, sort of putting in his little indication, subtle indication, that he's joined the team at this time in Troas. 
So they cross the Aegean Sea, have a good venture. They stop, they stop the night on the island of Samothrace, I think it's called. It's like a Greek worship island. <laughs> it's just devoted to worship. And then they, they, they stay for the night. They cross over into Macedonia and, and to um, Europe. And they head towards Philippi. That's their first major stop on this uh, part of the journey. The rest of the chapter, chapter 16, is devoted to the events and the things that take place there in Philippi in northern Greece. Paul's habit, of course, was to start by going to the synagogue to begin his evangelistic work. We've talked about that. But it appears that there's not a synagogue in Philippi this time. It took about 10 Jewish males to found a synagogue. And this probably means that there weren't a sufficient number of Jews in the city to warrant one. But so Paul finds the next best thing, a prayer meeting down by the river. They go down to the river, supposing that they'd find people down there praying. And they find a group of God-fearing Gentiles, perhaps some Jews, mostly women, who appear to meet regularly there uh, to pray and to probably read the scriptures. Paul shares the message of Jesus with them, and the first one of the bunch to believe is a God-fearing Gentile named Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira, back across the Aegean Sea in Turkey, that region of Asia that Paul had wanted to go to originally. And it's interesting that God had said, no, don't go to Asia, but then the, the first convert in Europe was an Asian, or from that province, named Lydia. And so Lydia is a maker and seller of purple fabrics. This is a, a pretty typical or a specialty of that region going way back to the ancient Phoenicians. They had figured out how to extract this stuff from sea snails to make purple dye for fabric. And it was super valuable. It was like a pound of this stuff was like a half a year's salary in value or something. So it was hard to get a rare commodity hard to extract, and so very valuable. But Lydia's people, the Thyatirans, had come up with a cheaper way to get the same result from the roots of some plant, the, mat, the matter plant. It's like a, just a simple, unassuming ground cover plant, but they got the roots, and they made their own purple dye. She, this is her trade, dyeing fabrics. She brought her trade over to Philippi for whatever reason and set up shop there. And so we know that she, from this, we, we discover that she's a head of a house, which probably means she was widowed. She's probably well-to-do because this is a, uh, purple's all the rage. <laughs> People want her stuff and it's valuable. Um, we don't know how she come, came to be a worshiper of Yahweh, but clearly somehow she had been influenced for good in the past by God's people. And she hears Paul's message and is the first one to believe. Now, why did Lydia believe? This is verse 14. Why did Lydia believe? Is it because Paul is just really good at his evangelistic work and really, really laid it out there so well? Is it because Lydia is like above average and clever and just ahead of, of people in general? No, look, again, another really clear um, instance of God's sovereignty, affirmation of God's sovereignty in salvation. The Lord, it says, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God not only decides who gets to hear, but he decides who among the hearing 
gets to believe by opening their heart. Your heart is closed unless God opens it. When we sing that song, my Lord, I did not choose you because that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. That's just, it's a biblical thing. It's unavoidable. It's all through scripture and in this passage. God opened her heart. There is just no room for pride in, the, in Christian faith. There is no room for pride in Christian faith. Not on the part of the evangelist, not on the part of the hearer or the believer. If God is doing any good in your heart, it's because he's doing good in your heart. <laughs> it's not because you are good or you have any natural proclivity to it or any right to these things or because you're smart and educated. It's because God is at work. Give him the glory. I do pray and hope that he is at work in all of us. What do we do with that knowledge that God's sovereign over salvation and that he's the opener of the hearts? What do we do with it? Is that an excuse to leave it to God? Just see how he's going to work? Sit back and, and relax? Is that how, what we see? So Paul affirms these things in his letters time and time again. What does Paul do with it? He, he, he snaps into action. He goes into high gear. He's all about casting the word broadly. He wants to tell everybody that he can about Jesus. Because, you know, one of the, one of the things, of God, who, God is the opener of the hearts. God is in the business of opening hearts. Do you believe that? God is in the business of opening hearts. And you can't predict who he's opening. You can't make those judgments from the, you can't prejudge that. There's so many varied examples in the scriptures and in experience throughout history of unexpected places God is doing his work in saving souls. And so what should we do? We should believe that God is opening hearts. We should, we should accept that it's not going to be everybody and that helps us understand rejection. Okay, but on the other hand, I, do, I hope, and I'm, I'm hopeful, and so I'm generous with God's word. I want everybody to hear, because I want everybody to have a chance to know and to respond, and I want to see who God's at work with. But having believed, Lydia immediately takes responsibility for those under her charge. If you look at verse 15, it speaks of Lydia and her household being baptized together. This is the first of two accounts in this passage of household baptism. Lydia's household gets baptized with her. And her household is probably bigger than just her immediate family, her children, her offspring. Probably it encompasses servants, maybe slaves, uh, perhaps employees in her business. They might, if she had them, they might well have lived with her in her house, and she would have been responsible for them as the, house, as the head of the house. So Lydia uses her influence. This is, she, her immediate concern is, 
I want the people of my house to hear this. I want them to believe. I want them to join me in my faith. And she uses her influence that she really has to good effect and brings her people along with her in her faith. We're going to have more to say about that at the end. The next section tells us about how Paul then lands himself in jail here in Philippi. This is Paul's first stint in jail, to our knowledge, but it won't be his last. Paul and his team continue to frequent this place of prayer because it's got evangelistic opportunities there for them. And Paul uh, usually went to places that were, uh, where people were prepared. He started there. And so he kept coming back to this place of prayer in, at, at Philippi to try to speak further to people and to persuade them to believe. And as they're going there, through day by day, their ministry draws the attention of a demon-possessed slave girl. So in the Greek, Luke describes this young girl as being possessed of a python spirit. She's a pythoness. And that associates her with the Oracle of Delphi. You've heard of the Oracle of Delphi? This is in Greek myth, and in Greek worship and paganism, this was like, uh, this was like the center of Greek worship. The high point, the Oracle of Delphi, where they could go and they could hear the straight dope about the future. Everybody wanted, the kings wanted to know the future, the outcome of a battle. Let's consult the Oracle of Delphi. And this was under the god Apollo. This was a temple set up in his honor. And he had, it had previously been, in Greek mythology, had been under the control of Python, this sort of dragon serpent dude. And Apollo had killed him and taken possession of the oracle. And so now this was the, the Apollo's oracle. So this little town, Philippi, had their own little oracle of Delphi. This, this, this girl that they believe and saw as being filled with the same spirit of being able to foretell the future that they could have found down at Delphi. And she's in the habit of following Paul and his team, going around crying out, verse 17, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now why on earth would a demon go around following God's servants proclaiming the truth about them? Why? You remember Jesus had this many encounters like this too with demon-possessed individuals. And what, what is going on? Well, there's not really a clear answer. But I'll tell you as best I can, I'm not even sure I half understand what I'm trying to say here, but my sense from this is that it's sort of like if you can't beat them and Jesus dethrones the demons, his authority is absolute. We see it expressed here when, when Paul says, get out of her, he comes out immediately, the spirit does. So Jesus has, by his death and resurrection, has triumphed over the forces of darkness, has unseated the demons, and Wherever the gospel comes, it's a real threat to the powers of darkness. It is. And they know this. So they have to pick a strategy. Are we going to outright oppose it? We're going to, you know, go to war, combat, or are we going to try some sneakier tact? And sometimes it, I think that's what they're doing here. He, the, the spirit, the evil spirit is saying, by announcing and hailing these men as servants of the Most High God and declarers of the truth, He's, it's sort of like muddying the waters of the truth. This has something to do with us. This is just another sort of good option in town for, for truth. 
And by associating, by a demon associating itself with the truth, it confuses the matter and weakens the force of the gospel. That's the strategy, I think, that they're employing here. Well, it gets under Paul's skin. After he's heard it enough, he gets really annoyed. And out of that annoyance, which is really interesting, he exercises the demon from this girl. Why he didn't do it at first, I couldn't say. Why he waits until he's annoyed, I couldn't say, but he does it. And let's not miss the fact that while we don't know what, hap- what comes of the girl, this is a huge blessing to her. To have this demon who's hold- held her in bondage all her life, probably, or for years, cast out and hurt to be freed from the oppression, the corruption of it in her life, and to be a- made by it a tool to serve the the gain of masters. It's a huge blessing, even if it comes from annoyance on Paul's part. Paul's greatly annoyed, verse 18, and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and came out at that very moment. There's the authority of Jesus over the demons. Absolute authority. We don't, uh, we don't know what came of the girl, but we do know that her, divine, her divining powers were gone and she was of no more value to her masters. And that meant trouble for Paul and his crew. So one commentator said something like this, when Paul exercised the unclean spirit from the slave girl, he exercised her master's means of profit. And they were not pleased. So the girl's owners dragged Paul and Silas before the local magistrates, not in the courts, but in the marketplace, because there's, there's a crowd. And they're playing to the prejudices of the crowd and how they present their case and their arguments. Look at verse 20. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, like you do. And are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Prejudice. Playing to the crowd. Now proselytizing or witnessing to Romans was not technically speaking illegal as far as we know. But it probably was frowned on culturally. Certainly the Romans, they had their ways and their ways were superior to everybody else's ways. And well they tolerated the, the weird Jews their little clique, their little thing, it probably was very frowned upon and discouraged that they would have anything, any interest in it, anybody would try to witness to them. So the crowd in the marketplace joins in, voices its support for their disapproval, and, um, and, and it's like they're saying, you know, we're Roman citizens, we shouldn't have to put up with being molested by Jewish peddlers of strange gods and deities, you know. They, these people need to be taught their lesson. And so they get indignant and pile on, and the magistrates then respond by tearing their robes and proceeding to have, ordering them to be beaten with rods and imprisoned. So that's without proper trial, without any serious investigation into these allegations of what's going on. They just seize the moment, and they think they've got the upper hand because... As far as they know, they're just a bunch of Jewish vagabonds. Who cares? So Paul and Silas then spend their time in jail that day, that night, 
And what, how do they spend their time? I am so, Jenna can tell you, please don't tell them Jenna. <laughs> how easily I get discouraged and depressed at the smallest things and despondent. And don't turn to God and don't, you know, we even want Jenna to say something helpful to me. How do, what do these godly men do? They've suffered. They've been beaten with rods. They're imprisoned in the stocks. The stocks, Roman stocks are notoriously painful. Like leg-spreading torture devices. The jail is not, I mean, we've heard some bad things about the Monroe County Jail lately. But it's like the Hilton compared to this place, I, I'm sure. They had no standards. So it's probably a hellhole. And what are they doing? They're praising God and praying to him. And it's, it's so powerful and potent that other people are listening and being moved and are awed by it. I think that's what we have to see about the prisoners is why we, they're, they're, it, we're, we're told explicitly that they're listening. And then once there's freedom available to them, they don't take it. What's going on except that everybody in this equation is awed by both the earthquake and by the faith and the faithfulness, men of a completely other spirit than this jail has ever seen <laughs> have suddenly descended there. And they're worshiping God and praising him in the middle of the night in their pain and suffering. I think it's really incredible. And something for us to learn from. A way of cheering ourselves up in trouble. Singing God's praises. God intervenes and suddenly in verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So the, the, that's, an, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> what a thing. That's a miracle. That's, scholars over the years have tried, they always try with all these miracles to explain it away. What are you going to say? An earthquake that didn't, collapsed the building on everybody, that's what earthquakes normally do, resulted in ever, the doors being flung open and the chains coming off. Amazing. It's a miracle of God. And it's, he is speaking and acting to vindicate his witnesses in the sight of everybody. Certainly the jailer gets the message. He comes in and first he sees the doors opened and he thinks, oh, They've gone. My life is over. Because he's responsible for these prisoners. And as Roman law requires, whatever prisoners that escape under, his, under their watch, the soldier's watch or the jailer's watch, that he's now liable for their sentence. He's probably got murderers there or people under capital offenses. Certainly, he thinks he's brought incredible dishonor on himself and the family. So what does he do? He does what he thinks is the honorable thing. And he pulls his sword out to start to kill himself. And Paul sees this happening somehow. It's in the middle of the night. Maybe we see his silhouette on the door. And Paul says, stop, don't do that. We're all here. We're all here. And so how does the jailer respond? He, trembling and in fear, he comes and he falls down before the, before the apostles and says, brothers or sirs, sirs, what? Must I do to be saved? 
What's happened to him? Certainly he knows his prisoners and who, why they're there. He knows these men have come. They've been accused of being, you know, peddlers of some foreign god, some strange god. He doesn't care about them until there's an earthquake. And then these men who are, he is, who is now still there, and he's come within a, a hair of the end of his life. Now these men are still there, and they're declaring to him that he doesn't have to die. God is at work in his conscience, in his heart. And he's just in awe of what's happening. What is God? God has spoken through an earthquake. The prisoners have been allowed to escape, and they haven't done it. God, I have to deal with him. Sirs, I, now, I believe that you have something to tell me. I, who are you? I want, what can I do to be saved? And they tell him. What do they tell him? What do you have to do to be saved? Recently, I've hung out with some people who are like exercise gurus. And I just got a taste for how devoted to exercising they are. It's like a religion. Okay, I'm for exercise. I'm for fitness. I'm for health. More and more, I'm forced to be into it by the doctor and by my desire to be mobile. The old shoulders are hurting. But exercise has become a faith, a way of putting off as long as I can my appointment with God and to not have to think about that and to have this discipline and this rigor that gives me euphoria and a sense of meaning and purpose and for my life. And there's a thousand things like that that are available to us that propose themselves as ways of salvation, hope of salvation, promise of escape. What's Paul's answer? It's, 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 not in, it's not in ourselves. It's, it, is, it is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe there is no hope in you. Do you hear me? There is no hope that you're going to find in yourself in exercise, in carbon offsetting, in education, in classical music, in any religion that's man-centered and it tells you to look within or to better yourself. You, there is no salvation in those things. Those are all equally hopeless solutions. But there is a solution, and it is, Paul is a witness to it, and he gives it to the jailer. The solution is believe. Look outside of yourself to a Savior, Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus done? He on the cross has fully satisfied the wrath of God for all the sins of his people. 
fully satisfied. There's not a drop of wrath or anger left in God for all of the people for whom Jesus spilled his blood. And that offer is presented to this jailer. Believe in Jesus. Be one of his people. And receive the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on uh, to speak this to his whole household, we see. Paul, in verse 32, he proceeded to speak the word of the Lord to the jailer together with all in his house. And what follows then is a tender exchange of washings. The jailer and his family see to Paul and Silas's wounds, and Paul and Silas see to their baptisms, verse 33. And they're brought into the jailer's house, and food is set before them. And the jailer rejoices greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So this is the third time this emphasis about households and the influence of parents on children and, ch and children and other dependents joining in the faith of their parents, okay? So let's, just to conclude, let's talk about that for a while, okay? Because that is the main, that is a major emphasis of this passage. Parents, you, I, we have a duty to influence our children and to imprint Christian faith on them. That we have to conclude from this. There's other scripture that affirms that, but here we have three examples that affirm it. Okay? Eunice with Timothy imprinted her religion and her faith on her son. Lydia with her household. She hears and believes she sees to the spiritual needs of her house, and she imprints her faith and uses her influence on her kids, and they believe. This jailer believes, and he immediately says, Paul, come talk to my whole house. Let's, I want them all to hear this message and this, this news. They're all parents using their influence to, in, to enculturate their children in the knowledge of the Lord in faith in the Lord, and in obedience to the Lord through baptism. Okay? Three examples of it. Parents, we have a duty to instruct our children in the ways of God. Yes, we have to leave room for the sovereignty of God. Our hope is not in our efforts. It's in God, and God is God. But he normally works through households. That's what he does. That's the pattern we see in Scripture and in history. God is normally going about the work of building his kingdom through parents teaching their children. Okay? So parents, give yourself to that work faithfully and in the fear of the Lord. And prayerfully, give yourself to that work. One of the worst things I've encountered in my life are some parents who think it's some sort of like principle that they're going to let their children find their own way. Because if they then find their way to Jesus, it's more truly theirs. Oh, that's awful. It is not biblical. And the world is after your kids. They're not apologetic about trying to enculturate them. Who's going to stand against that if it's not you? God has given them to you to nurture and instruct 
and to raise up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. So parents, are you doing your work? Are we doing our work with our children? If you are, and you see it bearing fruit, give glory to God, because trust me, (laughs) you're not as good at it as you think you are. And even if you're the Apostle Paul, it's the Lord opening the heart. So praise him. If you see that God is giving, blessing your work, praise God and give him the glory. Don't be proud. Don't be proud. Recognize, as I've heard many, many testimonies this morning after the first service, God is working in spite of me. Praise God. God's sovereignty is a theme here. And now, we have, and now you hear me calling you to action and obedience and work. And they're about the souls of our children. So how do they relate? Well, they are perfectly in harmony with each other, actually. And there's a wonderful testament to this in Genesis. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, where God is musing to himself about his servant Abraham. And then he says this, Genesis 18, 19, I have chosen Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Isn't that amazing? Abraham, God made buku promises to Abraham. Affirmation after affirmation, you're going to have a mighty nation and your descendants I'm going to bless. And then as he's talking to himself, God says, here's why I've chosen Abraham, so that he'll command his household, so that I can bring upon him all the things I've promised. Abraham is God's appointed agent and means for bringing about the promises of God. So God has, he made promises to be a God, not to just us, but to our children after us. He has, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. How do we claim those promises? By enculturating and commanding our households. So that God can bring about all that he's promised. So parents, parents, do your work. Do your work. Do it in faith. Do it humbly. Do it with repentance and, and trying harder next times and all of that, but do your work. Now, I know that there's a number of people who are sorrowing over children that God has not been working in, either who have abandoned faith altogether or who we just don't know where they stand, and it's a cause of concern and worry or grief. Do your work. You may look back on your life as a parent, on your work, your time with that child, and see lots of mistakes. If you're at all honest, even the best parents are going to look back and see lots of mistakes. Do you know what is a really profound way to go about your work if you're one of those parents? Confess your sins to your child.
say, sweetie, honey, son, I've just been thinking and God has brought to mind so many ways that I have failed you. I have so many regrets. I hope you can forgive me. And I hope you won't judge God because of my failures and sins. But look past me to God who is good. That's a way of using your influence (laughs) profoundly in the life of a child who has wandered from God or is, you don't know where they stand. Children, I want to say something to you, okay? Why did God put you in a Christian home? Why did God put you in a Christian home? Is it because he didn't want you to believe? No, that's ridiculous. Why did God put you in a Christian home? He put you in a Christian home to bring you close to him. You know how it says, Jesus said, Don't, you know, no, bring the children to me, for such as, of such is the kingdom of heaven. God has put you in a Christian home, in a home that believes in Jesus, and it comes to church to bring you close to him. Because he wants you to hear and believe. And you know what? That comes with an obligation. Because God in his own will put you in a Christian home, you didn't have to be born into the family you were born into. You could have been born in Asia. And Paul could have passed you by. But here you are. The gospel has come to you. And you know what that means? That's a sign of God's desire and intention for you to grow up and to own the faith of your parents and to own their God as your God. And you know what? It's more than his desire. It's your obligation. Because here you are in a Christian home and you owe it to your parents and your parents' God to believe in him. You've heard the truth. And you're obligated by it. And you know what? You're not. There's, now listen. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. Children, you're going to find all kinds of reasons to judge your parents and to resent them because they have all, in all kinds of ways really failed you. But you know what you're not going to be able to do when you stand before God? Blame your mommy or blame your daddy. You know enough because you've heard the truth. Imperfectly lived out, but you know what? God ordained that too. He knew that your mom and dad would be a sinner and that they would fail you. And that's part of the plan. And you're not going to be able to to say, I blame my mom because she was too mean. 
I blame my dad because he was a hypocrite. God's going to look and say, well, look what I did for you. You're obligated. So love the Lord. Believe in Him. We could come, we could look at a passage like this and we could argue over infant baptism or believer's baptism. And that's just the, that's just the decision of when to apply a sign. I'm talking about the stuff underneath the sign, <laughs> the significant thing. And that is a parent's obligations towards their child in, before the Lord and a child's obligations before the Lord to own the faith of their parents as imperfectly as it comes to you. Will you believe? And parents, will you do your work? Will you pray? Claim the promises of God in your prayers. David is always appealing in his prayers in the Psalms to God's nature and his promises and saying, why aren't you, why aren't you acting in a way consistent with your promises? Pray that to the Lord, parents. Plead with God for, your, for the souls of your children and command your households, even if it's late in the game, by appealing to them and humbling yourself before them and confessing and acknowledging your many faults. I have them. You have them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would please work in and among us in our homes. Oh, Father, help us as parents to be faithful in instructing our children and teaching them. We pray that you'd bless that work and that they would rise up and call you blessed and know you and own you for their God. We pray for their souls, Father, that you would work in the hearts and lives of our children, that they would believe and carry on the faith to more generations to come. And we pray, Father, that those who have abandoned faith, who have been sons and daughters and households here, or who are in the process of abandoning faith or tempted to abandon you, I pray that you would work in their heart, help them to wake up, help them to realize that they will stand before you and have to give an account just like everybody else. Would you, Father, please bring them to yourself, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.